and turn to the book of Proverbs in the Pew Bibles. It's found on page 635. So we start this series tonight in Proverbs chapter 1, and we're going to work our way through to Proverbs chapter 9, which does sit as a little section in the book of Proverbs, mainly a father addressing a son saying, listen, my son. So we're going to read tonight Proverbs 1, verses 1 to 7. This is God's word. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. For attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you say in your word, this is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And so we pray tonight that you would give us a humility uh, that takes your word as your words, the very words of the living God, and that we would not just be hearers and therefore foolish, but we would be those who hear and put into practice and so display wisdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to do a little overview of this little bit of Proverbs. Hopefully it will give us an insight into the rest of the book. But I want to set up a principle first, which we'll come back to later on. Uh, imagine if you can, hopefully it won't be too hard, a group of young lads, maybe an unruly rabble, something like these gents down here, right? Now, these lads find themselves at school, and they're sitting in their classroom when all of a sudden, rather than their normal teacher, a supply teacher walks into the room. Now immediately they clock the relationship with this new supply teacher and their thinking changes and their behavior is going to change. Because everyone knows you treat a supply teacher in the same way that you drive a higher car. You can do what you want. Now imagine then, the next week they return to the same classroom, their normal teacher is still absent, but the headmistress walks into the room. Now again, they clock the relationship, their thinking is altered, and their behavior falls into line. Now the same group of boys pour out of the school on lunch break, and they're walking down the street, and they spot a young group of girls, probably about their age. Now again, they clock the relationship, things happen, their thinking changes, and their behavior falls into place. Maybe they get home, similar things happen as they interact with mum or dad or dog or little brother and sister. But the principle is, our consciousness of relationships always impacts our thinking and our behavior. Do you get the principle? It's not just true of a young lad, it is true of the businessman in his work 
uh, the mum at the school gates or the granny as she in, interacts with other ladies. How you relate to different people as they enter the room or enter your environment impacts what fills your thoughts and how your behavior flows out. Now, we're going to come back to that later, so keep that in mind. We're going to go through the book of Proverbs, firstly by looking at the book's title, then looking at the book's blurb, and then by looking at the book's slogan. I got through most of my high school years, especially English, never even reading any of the books we studied. Because pretty soon you realize, if you've got the title, the blurb, and maybe the main thesis of the book, you can spraff to your heart's content and still get a decent grade. But tonight, what I hope, that as we see the title and the blurb of the book of Proverbs, it's not going to make us think, I can just skim this and get away with it. But actually, I want to dive in and read the rest of the book. So let's go first slide. Uh, the book's title. We read in verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Uh, Solomon is not the sole author of this book. There are other contributors. But his is the name that gets tagged in the title. As you read that, Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, it makes you both look back in the Bible, but also forward in the Bible. It makes you look back and say, right, who is this guy, Solomon? Uh, well, in chapter uh, 3 of the book of 1 Kings, we meet Solomon as he has inherited the kingdom from his father, David. He becomes king of the nation Israel. Do you know what he says? His words say, to God, I'm only a little child, and I don't know how to carry out my duties. I feel a little bit like that as I'm preaching the book of Proverbs, trying to speak about wisdom, as many of you know I'm a fool. But as he says, I'm only a little child, he asks God very wisely for one thing. He says, God, give me wisdom. And God honors this request abundantly and says, I will give you a wise and a discerning heart. And in 1 Kings 4, the result is that King Solomon becomes the Gareth Bale of his day. He attracts people from every nation on earth. 1 Kings 4, men of all nations come to listen to this king. We find ourselves in the worldview of ancient Israel, listening to their king give God's wisdom. But as we look at this, it's not only looking back, finding ourselves in the worldview of Israel, we're also looking forward, and the whole world is actually in view. The rest of the Bible, the Gospels, see King Jesus as David's greater son, and Matthew 12 says he is the one greater than Solomon. Why study this book of Proverbs today? Because we find ourselves not just remembering some king of ancient Israel, but we are listening to the wise one, to King Jesus, the one greater than Solomon. Here is, if you're a Christian tonight, King Jesus giving you his wisdom for living. Now, the book's blurb. Most books you have to look on the back page, but here in uh, Proverbs, we get it in the first uh, verses, verses 2 to 6. A blurb basically just always tells you what is the book for, doesn't it? And in verses 2 to 6, scan the verses, you can see... What is this 4, verse 2, 3, verse 4, 4, 4, 4. What is it for? Uh, Well, firstly, verse 2, it tells you this book is going to teach you how to think. It is for attaining wisdom and discipline, understanding words of insight. A Christian is someone who thinks very differently from those around them. 
You must know that worldly wisdom and God's wisdom are not the same thing. You can have two people and they can engage with the same scenario, the same lecture, the same temptation, and yet they think very differently. Why? One is thinking as a Christian, one is not. The Christian is not someone who has switched off their mind, but actually that God says, you are to love me with all of your mind. This book, Solomon says, is for teaching you how to think. Maybe you're a new Christian, just getting to know this stuff. Becoming a Christian is no small thing, but it is going to re-engage and redo your entire mind. But not only how to think, secondly, what is this book for? It is how to act, verse 3. See that? What is it for? Acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair. Uh, Our thoughts uh, have a massive impact on our acts. And so Proverbs is going to do both. Wisdom has the idea of a kind of skilled life. If you're a young person, the kind of term for use is techers. This is biblical techers for living. But this idea of acting prudent is the behavior that comes from a biblical thoughtfulness. It is a cool-headedness. It just doesn't run gun-ho into situations, but is the conclusion of a careful thoughtfulness. That is prudence. And this book is going to teach you not only how to think, but how to act. Worldly ethics and biblical ethics are not the same thing. Maybe again, you're a new Christian. Uh, When it comes to living life, you do not just live life, but actually the Bible says you have to learn life. It doesn't come intuitively, but God is going to lead you and teach you and guide you what it means to live a life that is loved. A life that is wise and prudent. How to think and how to act. That's what. But what about who? Who's this book for? Well, look on verses 4 and 5 and 6. It is for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young, and let the wise listen. The simple, the young, and the wise. Maybe the simple, those who are inexperienced, this book is going to help you out. If you're a young person, Proverbs is massively engaging you in your uh, living of life. In some ways, the book of Proverbs is pretty blunt about what it means to be young. It's pretty blunt about the struggles that you're going to face. Things like, you don't have a lot of hunger for correction. You're quite unwise in your choice of companions. You're susceptible to sexual temptation. And you don't think a lot about eternity. That's what Proverbs would say. But it's going to engage you in all of these things and teach you how to live a life that is wise. But maybe you think, oh, simple and young. I'm more mature. I've advanced beyond those titles. Uh, Proverbs doesn't let you off. Let the wise do what? Add. The mature believer is always learning, and the mature believer is easily edified. Uh, The life of someone who is wise is always adding and always getting, according to Proverbs. The same fountain that a young person or a simpleton drinks from 
in Proverbs, it's the same fountain that the wise, mature believer is drinking from. We're going to add. We're going to get. It comes to one of the main, uh, one of Proverbs' prized attributes is this attribute of teachability. If you can have one attribute for Proverbs, this is one to have. A humility that will listen and a humility that will learn. Uh, I read a great commentary by a guy called Charles Bridges. It's old now, but he says, we must be hearers before we are teachers. If we spend before we gather, we shall soon prove bankrupt. If you're a parent, if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you're an elder, Proverbs says, listen, my son. Add, get. Uh, one of the things that thrilled my heart, I, I studied Proverbs in my kind of personal devotions about three years ago, and I stole this book by Charles Bridges off my dad's bookshelf. Like most of his books, I don't think he'd read them. Like most of the books on my bookshelf, I've not read them. But I took this one on Proverbs, and I started reading it day by day. And the great thing about it was, I noticed in the margins of this commentary on Proverbs was my dad's horrendous handwriting, writing the date, 9th of May, 1990. After the next little bit, 10th of May, 1990. Amazing. My dad, when I would have been four years old, was listening as a son to his heavenly father that he might say to me, listen, my son, and teach me the wisdom of God. Parents, the first attribute of biblical parenting is teachability. Young people... A parent who is seen studying humbly God's words is not something to be embarrassed of, but actually a stunning gift from God. Our prayer at the start of this new series is that we would all be teachable. But let's move on from the book's title, the book's blurb, to the real kind of meat and drink of Proverbs, the book's slogan. Verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Slogans are quite trendy these days. Anything that is tweetable is lovable. But it seems also, I cycle to work some days through Morningside. So you've got all these kind of shabby, chic, trendy shops. And in the window, they've got these kind of pastel-colored metallic signs that you can stick up in your kitchen with these weird slogans on them. One of them that I saw this week was, let me get this right, live with no regrets, love with no limits. I don't know what that means. Uh, I heard another one. uh, Live hard, die young, leave a good-looking corpse. Another slogan that people are trying to live by. You get things like, say yes to everything. But what is the slogan of Proverbs? What is the heart of the book? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It will say it again at the end of this little section in chapter 9. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Of wisdom. Now that's not just Proverbs, that is the Bible. It is not beginning as in just the first step, but it's actually the pavement for every step you take in your life as a Christian. What the alphabet is to reading and what notes are to music and what numerals are to maths, the fear of the Lord is to wisdom. You don't get this, you don't get anything. The Christian life is lived in the fear of the Lord. One guy called John Murray says, our consciousness is not biblical, 
unless it is conditioned first by the fear of the Lord. So in Proverbs, whether you're the young man in temptation or the businessman rounding off a deal or the wife that is nagging her husband or that annoying friend who speaks too loudly at breakfast, all of their behavior and thinking will be determined by whether or not they fear the Lord. So we must say, what does it mean? What is it to fear the Lord? Well, we're going to look at it under these two headings because the Bible says the fear of God or the fear of the Lord comes as two sides of a coin. We have on the one side the fear of God for those not in right relationship to God, but then also the fear of the Lord for those in a right relationship to the Lord. Now, you notice that the titles are different under those two headings. That's going to be significant as we work through it. Let me take first that the fear of God for those not in right relationship to God. This fear of God in the Bible is a terror. It is an immense terror because sin makes us liable to the judgment of God. You can go through the first couple of pages of the Bible to see this fear of God. Adam and Eve sin. They rebel against God. They assert themselves in his place. And when they hear God walking in the garden, what do they do? They hide. Why? That is a right and rational reaction when you have rebelled against God. A terror knowing that you have transgressed, you have sinned against him and are accountable to his judgments. It is the essence of sin not to be afraid when there is something to be afraid of. And the Bible would say that for those who are sinners in rebellion against God, you ought to be terrified of this God. Isaiah 33, we, we hear sinners crying in terror. Who can dwell with this consuming fire? Who can dwell in everlasting burning? Psalm 73, the wicked are said to be swept away with terrors. King Jesus himself, the wise one, says, listen, don't fear the one who can only harm the body. Fear him who can cast body and soul into hell. If you're not a Christian here tonight, you may be afraid of nothing, you may be afraid of many things, but you must fear this one thing, that you are accountable to God that you will face the consequences of your rebellion against the Creator. Hebrews 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is the fear of God for those not in a right relationship to Him. Christian, was that not the thing that drove you to Christ? Was it not the thing that when you recognized that you too, like Adam and Eve, had rebelled and run and asserted yourself instead of him, and that you were worthy of eternal condemnation, that that terror drove you to Christ? It was a terror that did not make you hide, but in the end made you run to him and say, I've got to find refuge in the cross of Christ. 
where his wrath is satisfied by Jesus instead of me. fear of God for those not in right relationship to him. Now what about the other side of the coin, the fear of the Lord for those in right relationship to the Lord? You may say, well, if that was what drove me to Christ, now that I'm in Jesus, now that I'm saved, is there now not no fear? In fact, I'll prove it to you biblically. 1 John, perfect love casts out every fear. Actually, the Bible would say, no. Perfect love does cast out the fear of this eternal condemnation. But the Bible is very plain that the relationship that we are have to the Lord is one that is fear. Uh, you can go to the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, just after Moses is addressing the people as they're about to enter the promised land, he says two things over and over again. Hear, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God. But you know, either side of that verse in Deuteronomy 6, in Deuteronomy 5 and halfway through Deuteronomy 6, you get a repeated imperative. Fear God. Love and fear are not two opposed things when it comes to the creator God. Actually, they come hand in hand when you are one of his people. That carries on in the New Testament. Come with me just for sake of consistency to the book we're looking at in Sunday mornings. Come to 1 Peter in the Pew Bibles, page 1217. It is a thoroughly Christian thing to fear the Lord. 1 Peter 1, verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Flick over to chapter 2, and again verse 17. Peter writes, Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. You could go elsewhere in the New Testament. Philippians 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You could go to 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says, since we know what it is to fear God, we persuade men. So what is this fear if it is not a fear of God's condemnation, God's justice? What is this fear of the Lord? Well, just as you cannot understand a butterfly by observing butter and a fly... So too you cannot understand the fear of the Lord unless you understand those two things together. It is a fear of the Lord. In Proverbs, God is referred to in 94 verses. And in 87 of those 94, the title that is used is the Lord. In the Bible, that is God's covenant name, his relational name that he gives to his very own people. It is the name that is inherently in it a personal, intimate relationship with his people. The Lord is their God's, and they are the Lord's people. But as we come to understand this relationship, this intimacy with the Lord, we must remember who the relationship is with and on what side of the relationship we are on. Let me spell that out to show you what this fear of the Lord is for someone who is 
a disciple of Jesus. On this side of the relationship, you have God who is called Father. And so on our side of the relationship, we obviously have us called sons and daughters. We know who the relationship is with, and we know on what side of the relationship we are on. He is Father, we are the child. Therefore, we revere him. We fear him. On this side of the relationship, you have his holiness and his righteousness and his justice. On our side of the relationship, we know that there is an inherent sinfulness, a proneness to temptation, and that we often wander. And so the relationship, knowing who we're in relationship with and on what side of the relationship we are on, we rightly fear him. We stand in awe of him. Go again, on this side of the relationship, you have God as the creator and sustainer of the universe. Where are we on this side? Here we are as completely dependent upon him for everything. And so stand in dependent worship upon the creator of the world. Over on this side, here we have God sitting on his eternal throne, ruling everything down to the minutiae of a rolling dice sovereign over all and so who are we on this side submissive humble before him we fear him we stand in awe of him that is to say we believe his promises and therefore we love him but we also believe his threats and so we stand in fear of him it's to say I love him as a father so I fear offending him but I fear him as a father and so I desperately want to love him. Wisdom is profoundly relational. When you understand who God is and who you are and knowing what side of the relationship that you're on. Come back to these group of lads. They're wandering around life trying to work out how to behave and how to think based on whoever walks in the room or down the street. Life is a nightmare. And their behavior is so changeable. How does the fear of God impact how they think and how they behave? Well, they remember that God's ear is everywhere, hearing everything. And God's eye is everywhere, seeing everything. And his knowledge is complete, knowing everything. And so their behavior is not primarily dependent on the next person that walks into the room to teach their class or the group of peers that walks down the street. But if they are God-fearers, their behavior and their thinking is determined by what and who? The creator, sustainer, redeeming God who has loved them in the person of his son. Do you see that? This fear of the Lord is when we orientate ourselves within the Lord's universe and understand ourselves in light of his character and conduct our lives before his face. There was a time when Christians were known as God-fearers. We've lost that, and I'm not sure why. Either we don't fear him, and so we're not worthy of the title, or we think that in some way it is offensive or not good propaganda but actually it is a thoroughly biblical idea who are you 
a God-fearer. I love him, and so I fear him. Now let's ask a practical question as we continue this. If we're seeking to live for Jesus, if we're Christians, how do we know if we fear the Lord? Maybe it's a new concept to you. Maybe you've not really come across this idea of being a God-fearer. Let's ask a bunch of questions that will help us tease out, okay, how do I know if I fear God? What does it look like? Or you could ask the question, do I hate sin and flee from it? If you want a person to observe, why not take Joseph? Do you remember the story when he's in Potiphar's wife's room? There he is, and this powerful ruler's wife comes in and starts hitting on him. Starts asking if he wants to mess around, have sex, have some fun. What is Joseph's response? He says, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He's in the privacy of a room. And yet he knows that God's all-seeing eye is watching over him. The fear of God will bring a fleeing from sin. What about do you obey God whatever the cost? It's a good indication of whether you fear him. Uh, Do you remember Noah? Great story. He's told to build an ark pretty much in the middle of a desert in a place of drought. And he starts building and no doubt he gets the ridicule of his neighbors and probably the bitterness of his wife and his family. And yet Hebrews 11 tells us, verse 7, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. How do you know if you fear God? You'll obey him, even when it costs. What about whether or not you live with integrity? Uh, Nehemiah, another great example. You read in Nehemiah 5, he was among this group of priests who were all about a bit of bribery in the backhand payments. They were all about lording it over the people so that they could gain. And yet Nehemiah was a great man of integrity. He feared God. And so Nehemiah confesses, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. A fear of God will make us a man or a woman of integrity. What about, am I less fearful of man? The person who fears the opinion of their peers will be very changeable, probably very multi-faced. They wear lots of masks. What if you fear God? Well, the fear of man will decrease and there will be a constancy to your behavior. Uh, Do you remember Jacob? In that narrative in Genesis, he was a very fearful man constantly running from amongst many people his brother Esau and yet one night God appears to him in a dream and he sees the glory and the splendor and the majesty of God and he actually cries out he says he was afraid and said how awesome is this place and after meeting with God he goes on his way saying God will be with me and will watch over me The person who is growing in their fear of God will be someone who's lessening in their fear of their peers. The next two, I think, are quite interesting. Do I tell people about Jesus? And is our church 
growing. My guess is we think that when it comes to telling people about Jesus and church growth, probably keeping this idea that God is to be feared should probably be kept in the background. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, says, Since we know what it is to fear God, we persuade men. How can you tell if someone is a God-fearer? They're getting busy telling people about Jesus. Both, I guess, because they understand the terror that that person ought to feel, but also because it is one of the commands that he has given us to obey. What about when it comes to church growth? Acts chapter 9, let me read you this. It was, this talking about a church, it was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. We've got empty seats. How is church growth going to come in Charlotte Chapel? A community that has got an intense awareness of what it means to fear the Lord. The foundation, the first step, the last step, every step of our church life is conducted, orientated in his universe, in light of his character, and before his face. Do you know the God-fearer will make a great employee? Because they won't be working just when their boss's eye is on them, or doing what she can get away with without getting caught. But the God-fearer will labor with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength because they're doing so for their Father who is in heaven. You're going to want to employ a God-fearing employee. A God-fearer makes a great husband. He's not flirting with people in the office in the hope that his wife doesn't find out, but he is conducting his life in purity, knowing that he is before the face of God and that he will be held accountable for his adultery. You want to marry a God-fearing man or woman. A God-fearer will make a good student, and not just uh, taking time to satisfy their inward sluggard, not taking their loan to indulge their selfishness, not studying for a self-promoting career, but conducting their study in the light of the fear of the Lord, saying this is the first step to knowledge and wisdom. You could ask who knows more. The scientist who's an atheist who understands the molecules and the atoms and their movement and their relationship within this universe. Or the child of five who knows the gods who made the atoms that make up this universe. It is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, let's go one more place. We were going to do some stuff on uh, how do we grow in the fear of the Lord, but we're going to come to that in Proverbs. Alistair, could you flick on maybe three slides? Ah, that's the one. It is an important question to ask, and how do we grow in a fear of the Lord? I love this quote. I think it was from a theologian called John Brown. That's a general enough name. There must be lots of people called John Brown. Uh, but here he says, Nothing is so well fitted to put the fear of God into the heart as an enlightened view of the cross of Christ. How can you increase your comprehension, your understanding of who God is and so come to a right fear of him? You gaze at the place where you see his inflexible justice, his total holiness. 
the place where we ought to stand in terror and say, this is what my sins deserve. And yet also the place where we stand in total awe and say, here is a God that is to be feared. Though he is perfect in justice, he is a father of compassion and a God of mercy and a creator of grace who would send his son to face the terror that I deserved, that he would be the wisdom and the power of God and therefore my holiness, my righteousness and my redemption. You cannot help but look at a true view of the cross of Christ and say, this is a God who both I love but I also fear. This is the place where I enter into relationship with him but there is no doubt on which side of the relationship I am on. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now we don't want to be those who despise it or be a fool. So we are going to take some time to respond to God's word. We're going to sing, we're going to pray, we're going to watch a video that helps us apply. But can we go on to the next screen? Can I encourage you to take two or three minutes now just in silence, pick one of those four passages. Uh, the page numbers are up there. But turn to Isaiah or Psalm 111 or Psalm 19 or Revelation 15. Take one of these passages, read it through, think on it, turn it into a prayer, maybe of adoration or confession or repentance or praise. And take the time to privately uh, respond to God's word, to who he is and to what he has done. I'll then pray and we'll stand to sing.